My name is Austin. I'm an alcoholic. There has to be a strange irony attached to somebody like Tim putting a microphone in front of an Irish man and telling him he can only speak for a half an hour. <laughs> he obviously has never been in Ireland. It takes us that long to say good morning. <laughs> Being alcoholic, um, I want to tell you that I have a pedigree of sorts that I have used ever since I came into Alcoholics Anonymous when I'm a speaker at a meeting, and my pedigree, my pedigree reads thus. I am the adult child of an alcoholic, and I am the adult child of two, I am the adult grandchild of two alcoholics. I am the adult nephew of eight alcoholics. I am the adult brother of two alcoholics. I am the adult cousin of innumerable alcoholics. <laughs> And I'm the childish father of two adult alcoholics. And now we've got another one in training. So I've known nothing else in my life except alcoholism. I've known it since the day I was born. The first accident I ever had was a drunken accident where a drunken uncle dropped a cigarette in my eye. And so my life has been uh, surrounded with alcoholism one way or another, either in a drunken state or in a sober state. And um, I want to give you an example of, of uh, what happened in my house, the things that happened in my house. My father, he went on a drunken binge uh, one time and for five days and came back like the prodigal son broke and after doing away with all the family money. And the fight started in our kitchen and it worked its way through the house and got upstairs and then there was a, a loud crash of glass breaking and blood came pouring down the stairs. Now in any normal home what they would do is send for a doctor or a paramedic or an ambulance something. In my house what happened is us kids we were ushered into our dining room and this is what we were told to do. If anybody asks you what happened in this house tonight you are to tell them your father fell and he hit his head on the kitchen sink. Now you got to understand that that might sound normal to most of you, which I think it would. But for me, it was a, a license to lie. I had my parents' permission to lie from that moment on, and I lied about everything. Uh, the ironic thing was that they were very fussy about what I could lie about. And uh, when I was 15 years old, my... my uh, sister was getting married. I was involved in Irish dancing all my life and uh, I had no problem getting money because I danced in shows and get paid for it. And At 15 years old I, I, uh, I went to my sister's wedding and I had never drank alcohol. I had never tasted alcohol and I had no actual intention of doing so. But at that wedding sitting down there at the table there was a, a bottle of John Powers whiskey and a bottle of Sandyman Port Sherry, which I can still see up to the present day. And the idea came to me that I'm going to steal those. And within seconds, it became a total obsession. And eventually, I did steal them and went to the banks of the river that night and proceeded to have my first drink, a bottle of Irish whiskey and a bottle of Sandy Man Porsche. That's a lot of booze for a first time. 
Well, what happened was that somebody came by the river and saw my legs dangling inside in the river, and they pulled me out and took me home. And thereafter, I drank on every occasion that I could possibly do so. And being what I was in show business, I had no adolescence. I went from being a child to an adult because everybody that I was with in show business were adults. So I had to do the adult thing. <clears throat> At 16, 15 and a half years old, I was having an affair with a next-door neighbor, a 36-year-old married woman, because I, I didn't have any adolescence. I just went from one extreme to the other, and she supplied booze, and I didn't go to school, and, and this was the way it was for quite a while. And I, I often stopped to think that what would have happened if all these things never started? Well, let me, let me explain something to you. I want to go through my drinking story very fast. In the first 10 years of my working life, I had two jobs. One, I served my apprenticeship as a machine tool engineer with a company that made parts for the space project here in the United States. And having people like me in abundance working there, well, how these things ever got off the ground, I'll never know. <laughs> my, my next job was as the, the research and development engineer for British Oxygen Company in London, and um, I had quite a, a number of episodes there, and I don't want to go into the drinking, but I, I want to tell you how it affected me. One day, I was sent for to go to the personnel office, and when I arrived at the personnel office, my boss was there, his boss was there, and the personnel manager was there, and I knew I was in trouble. Uh, I didn't have to have anyone tell me, so they ushered me into the office and they set me down and, and the conversation started like this. Austin, do you know we're supposed to work on Monday? And, and I said, why? And he said, well, in the last 18 months, Austin, you have missed 59 Mondays. And as fast as lightning, like that, my alcoholic cunning kicked in and I said, why are you waiting until now to tell me? <laughs> Suddenly, one of these guys said, Austin, could you excuse us a minute? So I go outside the door, and these three guys are arguing inside as to whose job it was to tell me. <laughs> but the key to that was the 59 Mondays, not the, not, not the smart-ass reply that I had. Like, that's what happened. My weekends started early on Friday and started to grow and often reached Thursday before I would stop drinking. That was my weekend. So you can just imagine in my first 10 years, I had two jobs. In the next six years of my drinking life, I had 42 jobs. I lived in 11 different countries. I had 27 homes. And I never imagined for one minute that these things could happen to me. I never imagined that, for instance, I would represent my company in Belgium, in Brussels, in Belgium, in the Grand Hotel, which was uh, at that time reckoned to be the number one hotel in the world. And six months later, I was sleeping in Piccadilly's underground tube station in London. 
And I could never understand that. I could never understand that all I had to do was drink one drink and anything was possible. So you can just imagine after all my geographical changes, I come to one that is absolutely important to mention. I knew an Irishman like me shouldn't be living in London anyway. The English never liked us. <clears throat> so I made a geographical ch change to it Milan, Italy. And on my first night there, I discovered a, a beverage called Barbera wine. And for the next two years, I became a wino. And I lived in a hotel being paid for by my company. And I was there for the purpose of learning what the Italians were doing in an engineering shop and bringing it back to Ireland and putting it under one roof of a factory in Ireland. This was my job. And uh, drinking every night, uh, on the 29th of January, 1969, uh, I got a phone call that my brother had taken a bottle of vodka and a box of pills and went into the YMCA in Waukegan and outside Chicago and committed suicide. And uh, it's just another one in the line of my family that killed themselves. And I started a binge on hearing this that lasted four days. And after four days, I started to smell myself. When you start to smell yourself, you really need to take a shower. <laughs> On the particular day, there was only one person in the hotel. Her name was Ambrogina. She was 72, and she was taking care of the hotel and giving me the bottles of wine as I asked for them. And I wandered upstairs. And if you can just imagine the old-fashioned hotels in Italy, there was no shower or whatever in, in the room. You had to go down the hallway, and uh, it was a kind of a simple procedure. You, there was a cubicle, and you went into the cubicle, you took off your clothes. And then you went into the inner cubicle where the shower was, and you turned on the water, and you just re reversed the procedure to get out. Simple. Until you've been drinking wine for four days. <laughs> and I went into the shower and uh, went through the, the, the ritual and got into the shower, turned on the hot water, and... It was the first time I had felt, felt comfortable in four days, so I slithered down the wall, and my ass blocked the plug hole, <laughs> and the water built up, filled the next cubicle, out into the, down the stairs, flooded the whole hotel, and Ambrosina couldn't wake me, I couldn't get me out, so she went out in the street and got two guys to come in to pull me out of the shower, and they slung me on the bed. And I woke up at 8 o'clock that night and I said, shit, I'm late for dinner. That was my total reaction. I didn't remember anything about it. And I came down the stairs and as I was walking down the stairs, I figured they cleaned the carpet. And uh, I walked into the dining room and there might have been 200 people in the dining room and every one of them were looking at me. And just like the personnel manager, I knew I had done something wrong. And I didn't know what I had done wrong. But I want to tell you that story for a reason. This woman, Ambrogina, was the first human being in my entire life that actually recognized what was wrong with me. And I would sit at my table each night in her dining room after dinner, drinking my wine, and she would pass my table, and this is what she would say to me every night. Austin, Austin, sempre vino, sempre malato. Austin, Austin, always wine and always sick. And I didn't know I was sick. She knew I was sick. 
in the way I behaved. She, she had no doubt in her mind whatsoever that I was a sick human being. So the following morning she called my employer and um, I was deported from Italy that afternoon for being a drunk. Like, I don't even understand that. Everyone in Italy drinks wine. But then they don't do the things that I do when they drink wine. And so I came back to Ireland and I started the binge of all binges. They gave me a massive amount of money to get rid of me. And I started a binge that finished up with me living in a hovel um, in Shannon Airport. A hovel, if you don't know what a hovel is, it's a normal house that you turn into a home. I painted the windows black so as nobody could see in and nobody could see out. And I had nothing on the floor, one chair, that's all I had. And it was again the 29th of January 1974 and my wife and kids at this stage were being f fed by her mother and father. They were keeping my kids because I couldn't keep them. And um, living in this hovel on the 29th of January 1974, I was lying on the floor drinking a bottle of Buckfast cooking sherry. I will never forget it. I don't know if you've ever drank cooking sherry, but wow. You're really down in your look when you start drinking that shit. <laughs> and my wife came back into the area that night for a knitting exhibition and she said in our Christian way she would check to see if I was dead or alive. And I was lying on the floor and next thing I looked up and I saw this woman standing there. And uh, if an Irish woman wants to make you feel about that small, this is what she'll say to you. My wife looked down at me and she said, Look at the cut of you. Jesus Christ, man. And it was as if, she, as if she stuck a knife in my heart. That she just took my whole breath away. And I, I said, I looked at her and I said, Mary, I wish to Jesus Christ I could stop drinking. And I was struck sober at that moment. Just like that. At that moment, I never had a drink since. That boggles my mind. I had no intention of ever stopping drinking until I was dead. What happened was that she said, well, I don't know what we can do, but I'll try and find somebody to help you tomorrow. In the early hours of the morning, this priest came, and his name was Chalky White, and <laughs> he, he spoke to me for a couple of minutes, and he said, well, there ain't much I can do for you, but I know somebody that might help you. And about half an hour later, these two guys arrived and walked in and said, my name is Kevin, I'm from Alcoholics Anonymous. The guy behind him said, I'm... I'm Paddy, I'm from Alcoholics and I'm, do you mind if we talk to you? And I said, sure. So one of them, they came in, one sat on the only chair I had and the other sat on the floor beside me. And they started to tell me about themselves, you know. And I obviously wasn't listening, but in the midst of what was happening, this guy Kevin said to me, Austin, would you like to say something? And I started to talk as if I had developed verbal diarrhea. And I just poured out all the crap that had ever went on in my life, that I had driven everyone out of my life. I hadn't a human being left in my whole existence that I could turn to for one penny. And as I was crying and snots coming down my nose, and I mean, I was a physical wreck. It was the first time that I can ever remember actually crying.
I mean really crying. And I don't know how long I was talking for, but suddenly this guy Kevin interrupted me. And he said, Austin, Austin, he said, it appears to me you might have a drinking problem. <laughs> Jesus. And I felt insulted. Oh, I felt that this can't be. I could drink like Aaron. Like, when you can drink like I do, it's not a drinking problem. It's a stopping problem. And this guy said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going to stay with you. And they stayed with me all day. One would go to work, and they'd stay with me all day long. 7.30 that night, they took me to my first AA meeting. And as you gather, I have had lots of rock bottoms in my life. But my major rock bottom came on the night that I went to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. You see, I came from a family, because I was in show business, and my name was always on the papers, and that well, we were perverted snobs. And my mother taught me that I was the best human being in the world, and she would select my friends. I could only talk to you with her blessing. And so I grew up believing that I was superior to everyone in the world. When I was sleeping in Piccadilly Circus, I was the best drunk there. That's, that's how I lived. And I walked into that meeting in, in the Friary in, in uh, Ennis that night, and I looked around and the three people sitting opposite me had mental hospital uniforms on them. And I thought, oh my God, the guy that was doing what I'm doing was in a bus conductor's uniform. So you can just imagine how I felt. Jesus Christ, I said, have, have I to mix with the, the, the dregs of society for the rest of my life? That's the way I felt. And somebody took me for a walk and brought me back again. And every night after that, these two guys would arrive at my house. And I would walk around the house all day saying, when they come tonight, I'm going to tell them, you know where to go. And this is the end of this shit. We can't keep doing this. And that night, 7 o'clock, they'd come to the door. Austin, get your coat. We're going to give you the kiss of life. And I would pick up my coat, go out, get into the car, <laughs> seething with resentment. And coming back from my sixth week of sobriety, I was coming back one night with Kevin, and uh, he pulled the car into the side, and he said, Austin, I need to talk to you. And like the personnel manager, I knew I was in trouble again, and uh, he said, Austin, why are you so bad-mannered? Why do you keep yelling at people at the meetings? And what I would do is I wanted somebody to ask me to leave the meeting. So I would yell at people at the meetings when they'd say something, I'd say, that's not what you said last week. <laughs> and uh, so he said, why are you doing that? And I said, Kevin, if I did that in a bar, they would ask me to leave. And I have to leave because I have to drink. If I don't drink, I'm going to die. I'm going to kill myself. If I don't drink soon, I'm going to kill myself. And he said something. And he said, Austin, have you ever asked God to remove this compulsion that you have for alcohol? And I answered him. And as the answer came out, I knew I had said the wrong thing and I wanted to go and suck it back. I knew I was in trouble. I said, Kevin, you don't get it, do you? 
I don't believe in God. Well, Kevin, I, I want to give you an example. This man was an absolute perfect gentleman. In every aspect of his life, he was mild-mannered. and uh, You would just love to be around him. Everything he had was infectious. And uh, he lost it inside the car. He totally lost it. And he grabbed me by the coat. And he said, Austin, I don't give a shit what you believe in. He said, from now on, you'll believe what I tell you to believe. And I will never forget that night because he stopped at a bar on the way home and he bought me a bottle of orange juice and he said, keep that beside your bed. You might need it tonight. Well, you can just understand, I'm six weeks sober and these people have given me a bed. The AA people had given me a bed. And I, I, that night I made a conscious decision and I lying in that bed and I made a conscious decision this way. I said, Tonight, I'm going to turn my will and my life over to Kevin. And he's, and he's going to have to decide for me everything. Because I was going to do anything to keep God out of my life. I had a major resentment with God. What happened to me was that within 10 months, I was uh, transferred to a beautiful part of Ireland called Car Saivine in County Kerry. And the nearest meeting to me was 45 miles away on a Wednesday night. And with my record with banks, no bank manager was going to give me money to buy a car. So I couldn't go to the meeting on Wednesday night because it was too far to hitchhike. But on the weekend, I would hitchhike 140 miles, 135 miles to be accurate, all the way to Limerick. And I would go to the meeting Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, Sunday morning, and one of the AA group would volunteer to bring me home. 140 miles in Ireland at that time was a full day. Like by the time you got down there and got back, there were between tourists and buses. And, and uh, I, as I was there, uh, every week this guy came to me one night and he said, Austin, is it the time you started a meeting down in this place? And I thought, oh no, please don't ask me to do that. So I did. I set about starting a meeting. We got the church to, uh, to announce it, and we got the post office to put bells up. And, we, and you can just imagine, on the night of the 9th of September, 1974, we had the first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in South Kerry, and we thought, mm, we'll be lucky if we have 10 people. So we, had, we were in a classroom, and by 8 o'clock, there was 28 AA people in the room, who had come from various parts of Ireland just to support this meeting. And uh, I had never seen 28 AAs together in my life. And by 8.15, we had opened the partition. We had two classrooms. By 8.15, this was full, so we had to grab all the chairs, take them out of the auditorium, and set them up in the, in the basketball court. And by 8.30, we had 275 people at the meeting. The population of the town is 1,000. <laughs> now, you've got to understand, most of them showed up to see who the pet drunk was. <laughs> and, of course, I was trying to be anonymous, sitting at the back, until the speaker said, we'd like to thank Austin for inviting us. That was it. My anonymity was broken, gone. And thank God it was, because what happened after that was... 
the following Wednesday night, I went to uh, I went to uh, the closed meeting, and having 275 people at the first open meeting, I thought, well, we get at least 30 at the first closed meeting. So I arrived and set up my books. And but what happened at that 9th of September meeting was just as we were about to start, the door opened, and Kevin came in, drunk. And he had been drinking for a week and no, nobody told me, see? And he walked up to me and he gave me a bundle of literature that he had sent to the United States for, to General Service Office in New York. And he gave me a big book and slogans and 12 and 12s. And, and he said, I really want to be part of this meeting, Austin. And um, after the meeting was over and all the speakers had finished, Kevin was sitting in the front seat, and he did something that was just so profound. He picked, stood up, and he picked up a piece of chalk, and he went up to the back of the speakers where there was a chalkboard, and he wrote across the board, it's the first drink that does all the damage, and he wrote under it, he underlined all. So we went back to my house, 10 months sober, I've got a house looking out on the Atlantic Ocean, the powers of recovery have my, my life turned upside down. I have my family back. And I take Kevin home that night, and we, I was putting him to bed. And he got out of the bed, and he sat down, and he said, Austin, you know, he said, tomorrow I'm going to start all over again. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to talk to Trish, who was his wife, and I'm going to start all over again, and I'll stop drinking a day at a time. And I said, Kevin, thank God. Let's pray on that. We prayed on that. He got into bed, and when we woke the following morning, he was dead. And I learned the lesson of a lifetime. All my family killed themselves in fires, burned themselves to death, two of them. In a car crash, four of them killed. My brother, suicide. And now I had learned the lesson that all you had to do was drink alcohol, and it would kill you. I never realized that. I had no concept of how powerful alcohol was. None. And the following week, when I went to the first meeting, closed meeting, I walked in and set up the meeting, and I sat down there, and uh, I said, they'll start coming now about 25 after 8. And I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited for two years. Before one person would cross the door, I waited two years. Every Wednesday night, I'd sit down. But something happened to me that night that, I know was a God thing. It was the most wonderful God thing that have ever happened to me in my life. At 9.15 that night, the door opened and this delicate nun came in and said, uh, I'm Sister Bonaventure, she said. They call me Boney. And she said, I have been given the job of making the coffee for the AA group. And my first reaction was, Jesus, that's my job. Like, what's going on here? If somebody comes in here and finds a nun in here, they won't stay at all. <laughs> well, obviously God knew there was no one coming because there's a little piece in the big book that says, the chances of you being able to pass on that which you haven't got are nil. And I had nothing. I hadn't even enthusiasm. But this woman taught me more about spirituality than I've ever imagined in my life. And four years later... At that meeting, 
I contemplated committing suicide for the first time in my entire life, sober, because I didn't fit into this world drunk, and I didn't fit into this world sober. And one of the group had met a Canadian lady, and they were going to Canada to get married, and I was the best man. On my way back, I stopped off at Niagara Falls to a World Hello convention. I had been a member of World Hello for a lot of years. I corresponded with alcoholics all over the world. And uh, we had a convention there. There were 60 people there. And this woman got up on a Friday night, and she started to speak about the 12 steps. This is what she said. She said, I came to realize that in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps are written in 12 segments, and if you follow those segments, your life will change dramatically. That's what she said. After the meeting, I went up to her and I said, excuse me, do you mind if we go over that, what you said again? I'd like you to, nobody has ever, I've never heard this. Nobody has ever told me. It was a case that I'd never heard it. Not that it wasn't said. So she said, I don't remember saying that. And I thought, Jesus, I'm nuts. I'm hearing things. I'm hearing things that people are not saying now. Like, what am I going to do? So I came back to Ireland. And in the desperation that I was in of suicidal ideation and thinking that I'd be better off dead, I took down the big book one day and I started to read it. I had read it many times, but I always started reading at chapter 9. And then I read chapter 1. And then I read the story at the back. And then I read chapter 7. And that's endemic of my life. My, my whole life has been asked about face every time. I did everything backwards. And when I started to read the book from the first page, I realized, oh my God, this book is written in 12 segments. And each one is a step. How did I know? Well, it says you're now at step two. <laughs> and you're now at step three. And you're now at step four. And I'm thinking, Jesus. So I got down a sheet of paper and I started to write all the questions that I needed to ask myself. It had nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. It had to do with a personal suicidal trip that I was on. And I needed to fix this before I died. And I got down these sheets of paper and I started to write the questions I needed to ask myself. And the first question, when, when I came to the first step and I admitted I was powerless over alcohol and my life had become unmanageable, I had a new sponsor, Saraiki, and I was doing this with him. And he pointed his finger at me and he said, how are you powerless over alcohol, Austin? Tell me how you're powerless. And as if God had reached into my mind, I saw myself sitting in a bar in Shannon Airport. I was playing poker. I was drinking whiskey, washing it down with Guinness. And my wife and two kids came to the door of the bar. This is what happened. She signaled me out. And she said, Austin, will you please give us money? We have no food. We have no electrics. We have no heating. We have nothing. Will you please give us money? I, I don't want to use bad language tonight. But you can imagine what I said. You F off out of here. If you ever come near this bar again, I'll kill you. And I went back into the bar that night and I sat down in the john and I started to cry. Because I knew a rat would feed its young. I knew that. I couldn't feed my kids for alcohol. 
Nothing else. Just alcohol. I could not feed my kids because of my absolute insatiable appetite for alcohol. And I remember after I started to do the second and third step and I was sitting down, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, you got to realize I weighed 95 pounds. I was a skeleton. And uh, four years later in sobriety, I still weighed 95 pounds from nervous energy and smoking four packs of cigarettes a day. And I was in the middle of doing my fourth step after kneeling down and doing my third step with my sponsor and turning my will and my life over to God. And I'm writing my fourth step and my daughter, Sheena, came skipping into the room from school. She was five. She said, Dad, the teacher at school today has asked us to come home and ask our parents to stop smoking. And I reached into my pocket. I took out my cigarettes and I gave them to my daughter and I've never smoked since. And something happened to me at that moment inside in that room that I can never, never tell you about. It seemed that my whole head exploded and was put back together like a, a sane human being. That I saw things that I could never see. My wife and I had done so much damage to each other that we parted company. Uh, I want to talk to you for a minute about the 12 steps that I wrote that day. Each, each paper, sheet of paper that I had, had five questions on it. And up to this present day, I have used that with every sponsee that I've ever worked with. And I've worked with <laughs> quite a few people. And I do that for a reason, and the reason was that I was an intellectual snob. I couldn't do things the simple way. If it was simple, it was useless. And I had to get it even simpler than simple before I understood what the 12 steps were about. I was talking to some people at dinner tonight, and I, uh, in the last two years, uh, I've been invited to Denmark uh, to teach people in treatment centers how to do the steps because they had helped to tape advice doing this. And the government invited me over to go into a treatment center and teach them to do this, and they've invited me back four times. And I'm thinking, what the heck is going on here? Like, surely they can read what goes on. And the point I'm making is that they are intellectual slobs also. They don't have God in their life. And that's what changed my life. When God came into my life, everything changed. Like, today, God is first in everything. I don't trust people. I love people. I trust God implicitly. God is the answer to all my problems, always has been, and please God, he always will be, and if I've went on too long, I sincerely apologize. Thank you. Thanks, Austin. Austin, Hi. I'm Marilyn, alcoholic. Thank you for coming to speak to us. Could you tell us about your uh, prayer and meditation uh, on a daily basis, what it consists of? Um, I'm a great believer in, in uh, having a conscious contact with God. Uh, my conscious contact with God has been the same for, I would say, 29 years now. And it's quite simple that... Uh, 
I have an affirmation that I use, and it's the peace of God is my one goal. I use this all my time. Now, if I say that every time I... Let me give you an example. If I drive up to the traffic lights and it turns red, I'm liable to... But what I actually say is the peace of God is my one goal. And if I was to say that a thousand times a day, it wouldn't take ten minutes in total to do it. And yet I believe that that's what a conscious contact is. It's, it's me bringing God into everything I do. Just a couple of words. Uh, as, as to what I do in the morning, I say the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer. And I leave for, for work or wherever I'm going saying my affirmation. That's what I do. Thanks. Thanks, Austin. Okay. Craig, alcoholic. What are the five questions that you ask the new guy? There's not five. There's 12 by five. There's 12 steps. There's five questions to each step. The, like, when, when, when I, I read the step, I say, uh, I admitted that I'm powerless over alcohol. Well, give me an example of powerlessness like Ike said to me. And give me an example of unmanageability. Do you understand? Give me an example of how you intend to do this. And all they are is five examples, and you can only write on one page, because I won't read anymore. <laughs> and the reason I won't read anymore is if I can't put the truth down on one page, there's something radically wrong with me, that I'm looking for somebody to blame. That's, I, the reason that I say that is my first four-step had 58 pages to it. And Ike said, do you think I'm going to read this shit? <laughs> Man, I don't have time to be reading this. Let's get it together again. Yeah. Hi, I'm Steve, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Steve. Um, you had mentioned that you had contemplated suicide. It was a fascination of yours. How did you overcome that? How, how did I overcome it? Well, you got to understand, I lived in a place called Carsevine, and it overlooks the Dengle Peninsula, and there's a drop into the ocean of about 800 feet. And I would park my car at the top of it, and I would ask God, this is how I would ask God. Is, the, is, the, is this off? Is the recording off? Okay, I better not curse. <laughs> but I would say, if that woman doesn't talk to me this weekend, I'm going to kill myself. This was my wife. Uh, my wife, you got to understand, uh, she was a, a black belt in the violence of silence. <laughs> and you got to understand, we have a, a saying in Ireland. The saying is, um, when you say something, it's, it's the time of life when the brain departs the body and leaves the mouth in charge. And I always wanted to say, you know, if this doesn't happen, I'll commit suicide. I was totally obsessed with committing suicide because nothing was getting better. And the day that I, my daughter, Sheena, came into the room and I stopped smoking, I've never contemplated suicide since. What did I do about it? Nothing. God did it. If I, if I would ever take credit for not wanting to commit suicide, then 
I would have to go back and start all over again. Thanks for sharing. I'm Ken. I'm an alcoholic. I can. And from the point that Kevin shook you and said he doesn't care who you believe in, how did you find a higher power? It took me four years. Like, um, my higher power was AA. I went to meetings every night. And you got to understand that God works in real mysterious ways. I went to meetings every night. And for that one hour that I would be at, at meetings, I would feel sane. I would feel, oh my God, I'm in the company of something that just makes me feel so good. Then I would go home, do you understand? And everything would change. Like one of the kids would walk in front of the television and I'd scream. Is my life ever going to get better? <laughs> That's how insane I was. Like, but. I don't think God punishes us for being insane. I think he punishes us for being indifferent. <laughs> like, I wasn't indifferent. Like, I was willing to go to AA and I was willing to do anything, but I didn't know how to get past my pride to do it. And then one day, I stood at the turning point and my life changed. Like, could I tell you I did something fascinating to make it happen? No. All I know is that it boggles my mind every time I think of it. That, that God would favor me in such a way just blows my mind. Oh. Noreen, alcoholic. Hi, Noreen. Thank you, Austin. I want to, um, could you share a little bit about, um, you know, the eighth and ninth step and, and some of the men, amends that you made with your family, not only your children, but maybe your immediate family. Hmm. Uh, making amends to me has always been uh, difficult because of fear. Uh, I'm going to share something with you that I don't share with too many people. <clears throat> when I was 21 years old, I had a girlfriend, and she came to me, and I'm telling you this story to convey to you what kind of a rat I am, not what kind of a stud I am. She came to me and she said, Austin, I'm pregnant. And I did what any self-respecting alcoholic would do, ran. I took off like a bullet and left her there. And I went 15 miles from home and I met my second girlfriend who informed me that she was pregnant. And now I'm running from two sets of parents. And my ingenious solution to the whole scenario was I married girlfriend number three. And she thought she had won. Jesus. I mean, when I think about it, she thought she got the prize. I mean, wow. And 20, 21 years later, I'm living in Killarney, and one morning, I, I was driving back from Dublin, and I stopped off to see my sister. My sister gave me a newspaper, and on the newspaper was a story about me and my first girlfriend. Her name was Agatha. And uh, I said, wow, this is interesting, and I'm reading. And I put it in my car, and I brought it to Galani with me. And the following morning, uh, about 11 o'clock, my doorbell rings, and I go downstairs, and there's a beautiful young lady standing at the door. And, uh, 
She said, I'd like to speak to Austin. I said, I'm Austin. She said, if I was to mention the name Agatha, would it mean anything to you? And I said, wow, would it mean anything to me? And I said, I've just been reading about her upstairs. She said, she's my mother. And I said, will you come in? And we got inside the door to walk up to the apartment. And I stopped and I said, I presume I'm your dad. And she said, yes, you are. And we started to cry and we sat down on the steps and uh, we kind of started, I was trying to heal 21 years of absolute torture for me because I knew that these kids were there. And in our course of our conversation, it came out that she lived actually 10 miles from my home. And every year, I would go into her class, her school, and tell my story on a week that we have in Ireland that's called Sobriety Week. Somebody goes into the schools, and, and I used to go into certain schools, and she remembered me telling my story in her class. And so we, we parted company that day, and two weeks later, I was invited to Blackpool in England to speak at a convention. And the morning after, the, after I spoke, I woke up, and I was like a disturbed spirit. The, the saying in Ireland is, I was like a hen with an egg. I didn't know what to do with myself. I knew I was disturbed, and I was going to bed and get out of bed and put on the television, put out the television, have a shower. And I eventually got downstairs in the hotel, and this guy said to me, Austin, would you like to go into Blackpool for fish and chips? It's a great idea, David. So we went into Blackpool, and there's a storm blowing, and there's nobody on the street. The ocean is just facing us as we're walking. And as we're walking up this street, a door opened, and two women came out of this building and started walking towards us. When they got about 15 paces from me, I realized one of them was Agatha. I tell you the story for a reason. I said to David, David, that's Agatha. He said, will you piss off? Couldn't be. <clears throat> so I turned after her and I ran after her and I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, are you Agatha Downey? She said, yes. I said, she said, I don't know you, do I? I said, you do. I'm Austin. And she went snow white. The woman that was with her took off like a bullet. <laughs> and I stood before her and I said, Agatha, before you say anything else, this is what I need to do. I need to tell you that I am absolutely so sincerely sorry for what I've done to you. And her, the woman that was with her came back with Agatha's husband, who turned out to be a school friend of mine. And he invited us back to this Catholic club and we sat down and Agatha and I sat down on, on two stools and we cleared up the wreckage of 23 years and we became personal friends and called each other every week until she died the reason that I tell you that is that when I make amends this is what my sponsor told me he said Austin the reason that you make amends is that one day your life will come to confront you and if you haven't taken care of it you'll run to the nearest hole to hide. That could very easily be a bar. And I remember him saying that to me, and that's why I do the amends part religiously. I have to go back and do things that I'm supposed to do in AA regarding amends for the simple reason that it is insurance for me staying sober. That's how I see it. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for sharing.